And this is John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling, selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of their money of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remember that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when... He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many believed in his name when they saw signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and no one needed, and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. We'll just pray together. Father, we thank you that that we have your truth, that we have the truth of your word. And Father, we ask now as as we come to to study, Father, that you would, yeah, that you be with Ali. Holy Spirit, we need you to just open our eyes and open our ears to hear what you have to say. Father, we just want to take a minute to to just pray for our land. Father, I pray that peace will reign in this place. And Father, I pray that your church will arise, Father, and know that we hold the answer. Father, you are the answer to all the unrest that is going on in this province. And Father, I pray as a church, we will be praying. Father, we pray for organizations in hotspot places, Father, that that you will just give them wisdom. Father, give our political leaders wisdom. Father, give the church across this land wisdom and the desire to become involved in reconciliation. Father, help us as believers not to sit back and think that it's somebody else's problem. So, Father, we pray, and we pray for our services, Father, for our police, for our fire service, for our paramedics, Father, for any first responders, Father, who are under pressure. Father, we pray your protection over them. And Father, we pray for the children who are involved in the riots in this land. Father, we pray that, we pray, Father, that you would save and you would rescue and you would restore. 
And Father, right now as we come just to study your word, Father, I pray that you will use Ali mightily. Father, that help us never to take for granted that we sit under just the truth of your word. We just ask this now, Father, in your name. Amen. Thank you, Ems, uh, for the welcome this morning. Um, and good morning to everybody. Uh, I hope that you've had a restful time over Easter, that you've had a restful few days. And now we are back into uh, John's Gospel again. Um, and I want to thank Rachel this morning. Uh, she was at the first service for doing such a great job on the kids' teaching this morning. It's really essentially said uh, what I have to say, although in a lot fewer words and uh, more succinctly. So we're, uh, we're going to uh, sit through my longer version of it this morning, uh, but we'll, uh, we'll see how we get on. I want to ask you at the outset this morning, have you ever returned to your house and found everything just completely out of place? The whole place turned upside down. And I know for the parents of, of small children, sometimes if you turn your back for 10 minutes, it can look like the, the FBI has just raided your living room. But what I mean by this is, have you ever come home and found your house just desecrated, just ransacked, just turned over by a group of people? Maybe people have taken liberties with all your belongings and your stuff and just trashed your house. I remember years and years ago uh, being at a friend's house. A friend had, uh, his parents was away for the weekend, or, or so we thought. And a group of us, four or five, were there, and we, uh, it was all very civilized, but word started to get around, and more people started to come, and then word got around a bit more, and more people came. I don't even remember how word got around back then, before mobile phones, before WhatsApp and all the rest of it, but people started to come, and this turned into this massive just scene of carnage, absolute carnage. And this house turned from this warm, uh, sort of homely environment to this scene of carnage. And the bit I particularly remember about all this is the part when his parents arrived home unexpectedly. And they went ballistic. They went berserk. And I will never forget that moment as long as I live. And I actually thought that was going to be it for us at that stage. But they went berserk. And there was this sense that their house had been mistreated and misused and and uh, disrespected. And they were furious. And I say this this morning just to illustrate something of the scene here as Jesus enters the temple, his father's house, and finding that it had been mistreated and being misused and abused, finding it in chaos. And in the same way, Jesus was not happy with how he found things. Jesus was very displeased with what he saw. And this passage comes right at the start of Jesus' ministry. We saw a couple of weeks ago, just before Easter, Marcus uh, was speaking to us from the, uh, the wedding at Cana, which was the first real sign that Jesus performed, the miraculous sign of turning the water into wine. And that was the first sign that he performed. And it really wasn't performed in front of very many people. There's a few servants and some of his disciples had witnessed that. But this event today, as we look at it, this is the start of Jesus' public ministry, really. This is his first public statement. I want to read just from verse 13 through to 16 again, just to set some of the scene for us that Jesus encountered in the temple. And it says this, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. 
And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And this is the scene that Jesus walks into, and he's not happy here. We find Jesus as customary for the, the Jews at the time of Passover to come to Jerusalem, to come to celebrate and observe the Passover festival. This is one of the most significant episodes and events in the history of the nation of Israel. We covered it in the, the book of Exodus when we were in it last year. We saw the Passover and all that it meant and all that happened. It was a commemoration of God freeing and liberating the Israelite, Israelites from captivity and slavery in, in Egypt. What would happen? Families would travel to Jerusalem. Families would travel to come to the temple to make their offerings to God, to bring this animal as a sacrifice before God. The animal would be given to the priest. The priest would kill this uh, animal, and the blood would be poured on the altar, and the animal would be then go on to perform part of this ritual feast to commemorate the Passover. And at the outset this morning, I want to set some of this into context, some of the reasons why these traders and merchants were in this scene. And the traders were there to fulfill what was really a, a necessary and legitimate service to the people, for those coming to worship. So given the distances that people were traveling, some people maybe coming 10, 20, 30 miles, some people were traveling on foot over 100 miles maybe to reach Jerusalem. And in doing so, you can imagine how difficult it was to, to carry an animal that far, or to maybe herd an animal that far. Imagine trying to herd a, a lamb to, to Dublin. You know, you can imagine how impractical that is and how difficult it is. And it wasn't just any animal that you could bring. It had to be a, an animal. It was an animal without blemish, without imperfection. You can imagine over these rough-shod roads, uh, you know, by the time you got to Jerusalem, the animal could be lame, it could be ill, it, could be, it may not have survived. And then it would not be able to be used as an acceptable sacrifice in the temple. So out of this need and out of this convenience to the people, these animals were made available for sale and for purchase right in the temple as they arrived. And the money changers also that were there, the contacts for them, they would have been, people were traveling from all over and they were bringing different currency, different coins to the temple. They had to pay a temple tax each, each year and, and they couldn't use some of this currency to pay this temple tax in the, in the temple because some of these coins would have been inscribed with, uh, with maybe pagan gods and it wouldn't have been acceptable to use these in the temple. So the money changers take that money and they would have uh, exchanged it for common Jewish currency that they could use there. So we can see here that the practices in themselves, there was, there was legitimacy to them. Uh, they were there to, to help facilitate worship. And Jesus wasn't opposed necessarily to what they were doing but he was opposed to where they were doing it. It was happening in his father's house. And this was the crux of the matter. He says here, do not make my father's house a house of trade. And Jesus is angry because his father's house, which was to be a, a house of prayer, a place of worship, a place that housed his presence, where his presence rested, it had become a house of trade and of commerce and of business. These markets were set up in a place where they did not belong. And they were changing the very nature of the temple and the very nature of worship of God. This place which was to house God's presence, a place of presence and prayer, became more like a marketplace. 
the praise of God and the prayers of his people were being drowned out by the sound of these market traders and of business being taking place in the temple. And we've spent a long enough period in, in Exodus, particularly last year, to see that some of the major themes of, of Exodus was the, the order of worship, how God had ordered his worship in the temple, the exactness of worship in the temple. And that was a major theme of the book of Exodus. As we can see from this scene, this is far from that scene. That's far from what God had called for. And this was God's temple being defiled and being abused. And Jesus' anger is, is focused on the, on the traitors, but is also focused on the priests who permitted it to happen. We believe from reading the other Gospels, other historic sources, that we, we know that what was happening, the priests were renting out uh, space in the temple to these traders, and they were taking money from themselves for this. The traders then were, were having to pay their, their rent. They were trying to make some profit on top, so they would hike their prices for these animals and charge extortionate prices to the people. And then we've got the money changers, and they were taking their cut as well. They were on the, on the make here as well and, and adding on commission to each transaction as well. And the scene that we have here is, is profiteering and lining their own pockets in the temple at the expense of God's glory and of his worship. And all of this was said to be happening in the outer courts of the temple. And I want us to understand this morning that this, these outer courts of the temple, it wasn't equivalent to like the car park outside today. It wasn't just somewhere that you came and you had a chat before or after you gathered. This was part of the temple. And this was actually the part of the temple where the Gentile believers would have been able to come to worship. They wouldn't have been able to go into other parts of the temple reserved for the Jewish uh, believers. But as Gentiles, they would have come to the temple and they would have worshipped in this outer court of the temple. So in this part where they were expected to pray and, and praise God and worship God, all this chaos was going on. And we can see that this was not conducive uh, to worship of a holy God. And we see Jesus' response here. And it was, he was so zealous in his response that the disciples then recalled the words of Psalm 69, verse 9, when it says, For zeal for your house has consumed me. Jesus was consumed with zeal for his father's house. He was consumed with zeal for his father's praise and worship. And he was angry at the scene that he saw. And this is some of the context for, for what was happening, for who was there and why they were there and how Jesus responded in the way that he did. I want to look at just a couple of implications and applications for us as we come to worship. And the first is this. In the, in the face of a holy God, in the presence of a holy God, sin and hypocrisy corrupts our worship. Jesus here was speaking directly to our sin and to hypocrisy. Because sin and hypocrisy corrupts our worship. It cannot stand before in the presence of a holy God. As we've seen, the direction of his anger was at the traitors, but particularly as well at the religious leaders and at the priests. It was the priests who were there to oversee the temple to ensure that it operated as God, is, God had intended it to, to ensure that religious practices were carried out, to ensure that the purity of worship, to ensure that sacrifices would take place in an acceptable manner to worship and honor God. We see the priests in this scene that they're indicating on one hand that they're all for the purity of worship, the purity in worship of God, and that God was to be honored, but hypocritically they were setting up this marketplace in the very place where God was to be worshipped, and they were taking their cut as well. 
Their actions which they presented as seeking to ensure the, the acceptability of their offerings to God was, a, was actually a stumbling block to worship. It was an affront to God's holiness and it detracted from God's glory. This was their sin and this, they were hypocrites before a holy God saying one thing yet doing another. And Jesus in this scene is calling out that sin at the heart of the temple and at the heart of their worship. They were to be guardians of worship, but they had no desire for purity. They had no reverence in the presence of a holy God, and they had no fear of the Lord. These other practices had taken over. And Jesus exposes sin because Jesus is holy, and Jesus is righteous, and he exposes sin. He cannot stand idly by as this goes on. And he sees that sin corrupts our worship to God. And just as it did in the temple, this also applies to us as well. Jesus exposes the sin that is in our hearts and in our lives. He knows our hearts and he knows our sin as well. He knows where the hypocrisy lies in our lives. And we have to examine ourselves this morning. As we come to worship and as we gather this morning, it's, it's, it's cause for us to, to examine our own hearts to examine where there is hypocrisy in our lives, sin in our lives, which will corrupt our worship to God. Where are we holding others to a standard of holiness which we are not applying to ourselves? Where are we presenting ourselves as one thing but by our actions telling a different story? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that you're in, the, in the light of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, in the light of the coming of the Holy Spirit, that we believers are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We, uh, we, the church, are the temple to the Holy Spirit. Can we examine ourselves this morning and ask God to convict us and show us of the areas of sin and hypocrisy that we bring to our worship? In what ways are we defiling that temple? In what ways is sin or hypocrisy corrupting our worship this morning? And it'll be different for us all but we have to ask ourselves and examine ourselves before a holy God. Are there, are there business practices that we're involved in which dishonor God? Are there deep-rooted habitual sin in our lives which we tolerate, we overlook, we live with, and we piously judge others for? Are there ways that we disparage and divide the body of Christ with idle talk or gossip or slander? Are there ways in which we, uh, we say that God deserves all our worship but privately we're seeking our own gain, our own advancement. We need to be aware and we need to examine ourselves for sin and hypocrisy before a holy God as we come to worship. And Jesus will expose that sin because he will not permit us to say one thing and do another when it comes to the glory of God. Our worship is corrupted by hypocrisy, by tolerating sin in our lives where we live a life on a lie on the surface. Jesus knows and he exposes it. But Jesus doesn't just expose it for the sake of, of, of shaming us. And if this morning as we come and approach worship and as we gather to worship and as we uh, examine our lives, if Jesus is exposing sin to us today, if the Holy Spirit is exposing us to sin this morning, let us confess it and let us turn to him. He doesn't expose it just simply to shame us but that we may turn to him for grace. Jesus has grace for sinners, but hypocrisy and sin corrupts our worship. 
Let's examine ourselves as we come before a holy God this morning. Secondly, convenience breeds complacency. Convenience was uh, a driving factor for some of this, these practices, the, the selling of the animals and the, uh, the, money, the money men who were changing the money as well. And they were really there to initiate uh, and facilitate worship in an easier, more convenient way for the people. But these practices actually began to encroach on worship. And Jesus doesn't condemn the practices in themselves, but there's absolutely no reason that these practices couldn't have taken place beyond the temple gates, down the street somewhere else. But they did not deserve and they should not have been in the temple. But the Jewish religious leaders had allowed this to take place and allowed this one-stop shop for convenience to set up in the temple, a place where they could come and have all their religious needs and all the things that they needed under one roof. It was all for convenience sake. Come to the temple and get all your needs here under one roof. This is the height of convenience. And I want us to picture this scene in the temple, this place reserved, this place set aside for the the worship of God. And I want us to imagine a a Black Friday scene. Remember when you used to be able to go shopping or used to be able to go to the shops? Some of us never went to the shops in the first place. We might not know what this looks like. But in a Black Friday sale, you see the, the people cramming in and jostling and reaching for the same item, everybody wanting the same thing, everybody trying to get it at the best price that they can. Jostling and you know, all this you know, trading going on and bargaining and all this going on. And as we picture this scene, it's something of this scene in the temple. This is what the temple has been reduced to. We can see it's hardly conducive to worship, is it? The result of their complacency, the result of their convenience was complacency in worship. Convenience had set up its stall on sacred ground in the temple. Reverence to God was was lost to meet the needs of the people. What happens when convenience becomes a a driving factor? What happens is it breeds complacency. The easier that we have something, the easier that we want it to be. As I was thinking about this for me, and I was reflecting on the last, the last year, and the last year and my experience of, of online church and of, of Zoom, and I want to say at the outset that you know, th- these things have served a purpose in some way. They've allowed us to gather in some form, otherwise we, we may not have been able to, to stay connected in some way. But my experience of that, and I want to be honest about that this morning, at times, the experience of me sitting on my couch and clicking a button to come to church, to join in to church, at times has had a massive impact on my preparedness and my expectancy coming to, to Sunday gatherings. It's never been easier, it's never been more simple to, to join in or to attend a church gathering, whether it's a Sunday worship, whether it's Bible study, whether it's prayer meetings. But yet my heart has often been unprepared in the last year for worship and during it. I'll be honest in that, and I don't know what your experience of that has been. I don't know why you, you've had that same experience as me. But my convenience, convenience to me and, and the, the way that things have been has led me to be complacent, to be unprepared, to be unexpectant when it comes to God's word being opened, to preaching and the, the teaching of his word. At times I've been unprepared and unexpectant. And that's a dangerous place to be when it comes to worship. Just as these worshippers found convenience, they also found complacency. 
in how their worship was offered. They became complacent to God's holiness, complacent to the reverence and awe in which we should approach God in the, which, in, in, in the sense that we come into his presence, the, the, the sense of reverence and awe that we come into his presence in. We need to examine ourselves as well this morning. In what ways has convenience and ease led to complacency for us? In what ways have we become complacent to the holiness of God, to his awesomeness, to the presence of God? Have we become complacent in any of these things? Have we become complacent when it comes to prayer? We know that we need prayer, but has complacency led us to, to sort of think we don't need to be present as the church has gathered to pray as we've had our engaged 2021 uh, prayer gatherings over the last couple of months as we prayed for lots of things in the church and, and outside of the church to the community and needs and, and people who have, uh, have, have been ill and all sorts of things that are going on praying for, praying for God to move. Have we become complacent as we gather for those meetings? Do we just log in and, and then zoom out? In what ways have we become complacent because convenience can lead to complacency. Similarly with, with uh, the, the availability of teaching, you know, we, can, we can go onto our phones and we can click on a button and we can have any number of podcasts or sermons from all over the world, all over God's church. And these, these are a good thing. When we find good and solid and, and trustworthy Bible teachers that we can, we can trust on that preach the Word of God, that's a good thing. It's good that we have that available. But the danger and the, the ease and the, uh, the convenience of that is that we simply come and consume them. We have them available and we, we become complacent to the Word of God and the teaching of the Word of God. We can become like sermon junkies just listening to sermon after sermon but failing to, to pause and stop and pray and ask God, what are you teaching us in this? Where are you leading us? What are you convicting us of? How are you changing us? How are you shaping us by your Word? God's word is precious and powerful, but convenience and familiarity can breed complacency. So there's a warning for us this morning just to examine our hearts and to examine the places in which we've become complacent. And Jesus was angry, and, and we love this part, don't we? We love this passage because Jesus got angry. And angry Christians have been using this passage to justify us losing our cool, losing our baptism, having outbursts on, on social media, launching into rants about things. We, we love this because Jesus did it, didn't he? We, we say here, well, Jesus got angry. Jesus flipped over the tables. So, so can we. We're to follow his example, aren't we? And I wonder if there's any hands, if I uh, ask for a show of hands, anybody that's ever used this passage before to justify their angry response to something. I remember years ago, back at uni, uh, I played with a bunch of mates. Uh, most of the boys lived in around Tate's Avenue in Belfast, and some brains come up with the name uh, Tatenham Hotspur. That was our team uh, that we played every Wednesday afternoon with. We played other teams from around Queens, and one, one week we were playing against uh, Queens uh, Christian Union. One of the CU players put in this awful tackle, really late tackle on one of my mates, and me armed with a strong sense of justice and this righteous anger uh, righteously grabbed him by the, the throat and gave him a bit of a righteous dig to let him know that it wasn't on. And this led to this 22-man brawl breaking out on the pitch. And I had actually broken my hand earlier in the game. Somebody had stood in my hand, and I had to go to, 
the, the hospital, the city hospital that night, and they got this big plaster on my arm, over my hand. And the following evening, Thursday night, was, uh, was the, the night when uh, Queen's Christian Union gathered. And it just so happened that the guy that I had uh, hit, it was one of the worship leaders in the Christian Union. So there was he, standing at the front of a CU gathering, leading worship with this big shiner, and me in the fourth row from the back with this big plaster in my hand. And all my, my friends thought that I'd I broke my hand hitting this guy. And the, some of my Christian mates, they pulled me on this, and they said to me, listen, you, you were out of order there. You were bang out of order. You started that whole riot on the pitch. It was your reaction. Yes, it was a bad tackle, but your response kicked that whole thing off, and you were out of order. And I remember at the time saying, well, listen, sometimes you've got to stand up for what's right. Sometimes you need to, you need to uh, stand up for people. Sometimes you get angry, and, and Jesus got angry, and, and this was my defense to that. And I was a relatively new Christian at the time, and I'm pleased to say that I now understand that my vigilantism was not comparable to Jesus' anger and Jesus' response in this passage. And as we come to this passage, we need to have a right context and a right understanding of Jesus' response and Jesus' anger here. And it's important to remember that we are sinful and that Jesus is sinless. He is pure. It's, remember, it's important to remember that, uh, that, that in our anger, that we were able to be angry. Anger in itself is not sinful. Scripture tells us that in your anger, do not sin. And the connotation is that there will be things that make us angry. There'll be injustices that we see. There'll be injustices maybe that we see in the news as we turn it on that make us angry. But we're not to sin in our anger. And Jesus didn't sin in his anger here. Scripture doesn't indicate that Jesus was physically beating up the traitors, physically uh, abusing them. He doesn't throw them out the windows like some sort of Western barroom brawl. But Jesus' righteous, holy anger against the sin in the temple chased the animals, chased these people that didn't deserve to be there because of what they were doing, that shouldn't have been doing what they've been doing in the temple, in the, the holy home of God. And he chased them from the temple. We've got this picture in our heads, don't we, of this gentle Jesus, meek and mild in our heads. And this, this scene sort of jars with that and grates with that. But when we look at Scripture, Jesus has some pretty harsh things to say to certain people and particularly reserves most of this for the religious leaders and for the priests, for the Pharisees, those who he believed that were leading people away from God. Jesus had some pretty harsh things to say throughout Scripture to them. So it shouldn't surprise us the reaction that he has here. And he's not holding back because he's calling them out on their permission that they have given to the desecration of worship in the temple. And when he drives the traders and the animals out and when he tips over the tables and tips out the money, what he's doing here is he's publicly declaring that they've taken their eyes off God. He's publicly saying to them and calling them out that they've lost focus in worship, that they've lost reverence in, in the place of a holy God. They've lost reverence in his holy presence. We have to have a right thinking of, of God uh, here and of Jesus in here and confronting sin in the way that he did. In this moment, this is the most righteous thing that Jesus could have done. It would have been unrighteous for Jesus just to turn a blind eye to, to allow what was going on to continue unchecked. But Jesus is holy and Jesus is aware and fully aware 
of the reverence with which God should be treated in worship. We need to understand this response of Jesus as a holy and righteous response of Jesus. Jesus confronting sin in the temple. And similarly, Jesus will also confront sin in our life. God will call out sin in our life as well. He will convict us of sin. He will thwart sin. He will stop us in our tracks sometimes in the middle of sin. He will turn over the tables of our lives as well. And that would be uncomfortable and that would be tough and that would be difficult to experience, but it is for our good and we have to understand that. See, if we know and experience a relationship with God where he has never turned over the tables of our lives, where he has never disrupted us in, in our sin, then we have to examine where it's the God of the Bible that we're serving and following. If the God that we believe in simply goes along with everything that we do and think and say and conveniently just agrees with us and everything, then perhaps it's not the God of the Bible, but a God made in our own image that we've created. God of the Bible will not tolerate sin. He will not permit us to to diminish our worship for him. He will not uh, enable us to, to pursue other things that will not bring us joy and satisfaction in him. Nothing that will detract from his glory. This is a righteous anger displayed by Jesus as he is holy. He knows that God is worthy of all praise and of all honor, but it's also the loving thing to do as well. We might struggle to see that this morning, but Jesus, in, in calling out this sin and stopping this sin in its tracks, is for our good. Jesus knows that in pursuing other things, contrary to, to finding our joy, finding our satisfaction in God, that is not for our good. So when he turns over the tables of our lives, when he chases out the distractions to worship in our lives, what he is doing here is he's calling us to stop, calling us to repent, calling us to turn to him, calling us to find joy and satisfaction in God, the only place where we can. is the most loving thing that he can do. I wonder when the last time we experienced God turning over the tables in our life was. When was the last time that God stopped us in our tracks and convicted us of sin? What was he showing us? And maybe it was showing us that we've, we've set other things up in our, our
There we go. It caused the disciples this reaction was that their response was to look to Scripture. See, they had been spending time with him. They had been with him. They had been following him around. They had been learning from him. They had been with him. And it caused them to remember uh, Scripture from Psalm 69. And they likened this to Jesus' zeal for his father's house consuming him. They went to Scripture and they saw the authority with which Jesus spoke. They, they saw that he was right. They saw the scene around them. They saw all this, all this stuff that was happening in the temple and they saw that Jesus was right. And they saw his zeal for his father's house. And we contrast that with the, the scene, the, the religious leaders in this scene. And their response was to be offended. Their response was to, to push back on this. Their response was that they were defensive. They were on the back foot by Jesus calling them out in their sin. We have to know that Jesus, when he uh, calls it my father's house, that would instantly have made their blood boil, just offended them. That this was so blasphemous, this was something so disrespectful to God. They would have hated the fact that he called God his father. And their response to this was that instead of looking at the scene around him, instead of reflecting on the scene that there was, reflecting on all these things that they knew were not right in the temple, all these things that were there that shouldn't have been, they didn't reflect on this to see where their sin was. They didn't reflect on this to see if Jesus was speaking the truth to them. They didn't allow this to convict them. They didn't allow this to cause them to repent and turn to him. But the religious leaders instead sought to undermine him and undermine his credentials and his authority. And they ask him for a sign. They say in verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And in this, they were asking him to produce a sign to show his authority. What authority did he have to call God his father? What authority did they have to, to give them a lecture on how they should run the temple? Maybe some of them had heard some of the whispers and the word from the wedding at Cana, and maybe they wanted to test this for their, themselves, see this before their own eyes. But they called them to, to, to complete this sign or to perform this miraculous sign again. But Jesus wasn't a performing circus act there to perform tricks for them. And, and Jesus doesn't answer them in the way that they expected. But he answers them with this statement, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And when they asked for a sign, maybe they expected the, the instantaneous miraculous, or maybe they expected Jesus to fall flat on his face, to undermine his, his credentials, under, undermine his authority. But Jesus did neither in this moment. And they didn't understand what they're saying. We see, from we read it earlier, we see that they sort of mocked him or, or they were confused. And they said, listen, it took 46 years to build this temple. Jesus, what, what are you talking about? You're going to rebuild this in three days. But Jesus was talking about something all the more significant in this moment. This was the first time that he would publicly or he would, he would talk of his own death and his own resurrection. He was predicting his death and resurrection. He was talking about the temple of his own body, as it says in verse 21. He was predicting the, the destruction of his body and the, and the resurrection on the third day, where he would die for the sins of the world, where he would die to take the sins, our sin, pay the penalty for that sin and, and rise again three days later to defeat sin and death. 
to enter in a, a new way of connection and access to God. And this is what he was predicting here. And Jesus, in saying this, he wasn't going to create a precedent to just go around and, and perform these miraculous uh, signs for the skeptics at their back and call. But what he was doing here was he was giving them the biggest sign of his authority that he ever could. He was giving them the biggest tip-off to the biggest sign that it could be to his authority, and that was his death and resurrection. No other sign that he could perform, no other miraculous event could, could even touch the authority that he has based on his death and his resurrection. He is the chosen one of God. He is the holy one of God. And this is the sign that he gave to them. And what response do we have when we feel the conviction of sin in our lives, when we are called out in our sin? Do we hear Jesus? Do we recognize his authority? Do we examine our lives? Do we see the sin that is in our lives? Do we uh, repent for it? Do we turn to God? Do we uh, seek the scriptures to see what will guide us in truth? Do we turn to God and repent? Or is our first reaction a bit like the priest's defensiveness when our sin is, is exposed? When we feel the conviction of Scripture of the Holy Spirit piercing us, do we minimize our sin? Do we explain away our sin? Do we minimize it and instead question God's authority to speak into our life? Do we have this dialogue with God instead of, of responding in repentance? Do we try and justify our sin? Do we try to defend ourselves, try to deflect away from our sin? Do we seek God to, to give us another sign or another uh, moment of confirmation to see that it, it's definitely wrong? Is this definitely wrong, what I'm doing? And we've got all the signs that we need. We've got God's Word. We've got Scriptures that show us how God has called us to live. We've got the Holy Spirit which prompts us and convicts us of sin and exposes and shines a light on sin in our lives. And we've also got the sign of the authority of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. His priests didn't have that at that stage, but we have, we've known, we've celebrated last week his death and his resurrection. And we can see the authority that Jesus has to speak into our lives. We don't need lightning bolts from God. We don't uh, need any other miraculous sign. We've got Jesus. We see the authority that rests upon Jesus. And when sin is uncovered or exposed in our life, when we, when we run with uh, repentance and humility to him, we will receive grace and forgiveness. That's the gospel. Whenever we sin, whenever we fall, whenever we fail, we seek, repent, uh, we seek God's forgiveness through repentance and humility. And through the person of Jesus, we receive it. And our response to the exposure of sin in our lives will, will tell us a lot about what we actually believe of the gospel. You know, when, when we sin and it's exposed or we, we're aware of it, do we, do we run to God or do we run from him? Do we actually believe the gospel or are we trying to merely keep up appearances on the surface while we're dying on the inside? And the measure of our understanding of the gospel is that when we sin, we run to God and not away from God. We run to his mercy and his forgiveness. We don't try to distract. We don't try to um, explain away. We don't try to um, minimize our sin. But we run to the one who can deal and take our sin. 
and give us forgiveness? What reaction do we have when sin is being exposed in our lives? I want to look just briefly at the, some of the, the symbolism in this scene as well. In Exodus 12, God commands Aaron and, and uh, Moses to, to have the people each sacrifice uh, this sacrificial lamb to God. And this is the, the Passover, the, the first Passover. And, and as uh, they were to, to sacrifice this lamb, the, the blood from this lamb was to be painted on the, the doorposts of their home. And as the judgment of the Lord passed over, uh, those with the, the blood of this lamb, covered by the blood of this sacrificial lamb, would be shown mercy and be spared. And in this scene, what we see here is the perfect sacrificial lamb who would be sacrificed for the sins of the world. The sacrificial lamb stood there before them, protecting his own death and resurrection. And what we see in this scene, this, this multitude of animals, all these animals that were in the temple, none of which could provide any lasting atonement for the sins of the people. None of whom could cover the sin of the world. None of which could withstand the judgment of God on our behalf. None of which could once and for all defeat the power of sin and reconcile us to God. And we see all these animals which had to be sacrificed year after year after year. And then we see the, the one, the only one who could accomplish all these things standing before them in the temple the Lamb of God, removing these temporary limited sacrifices and standing in their place as the perfect and the complete sacrifice for our sin. The once and for all sacrifice. That we don't need to bring more sacrifices. We don't need to bring more animals to be sacrificed before the Lord because he has done it once and for all, the Lamb of God. And this is this extraordinary image and symbolism here, an extraordinary sign of Jesus' authority as the Lamb of God, spoken of in Scripture. And in closing now, we want to see the impact of this statement. When Jesus had said, you know, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. The impact of this that had on the disciples, we see that it says there, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And I pray that that would be so for us this morning. As we approach God in worship, I pray that we will respond to Jesus in the light of his death and his resurrection, in the light of the fact that he is the, the holy lamb of God. I pray that it will cause us to, to believe the scriptures, believe all that's been spoken of. I pray that we'll respond in, in uh, obedience and, and worship to Jesus this morning, recognizing that his authority as the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. Pray that we recognize that though Jesus is the one who, who may expose our sin, he doesn't do it just for the sake of exposing it. But he exposes it so that he is the one also who has absorbed our sin. He is the one who has paid the penalty for our sin. And he is the Holy Lamb of God who offers us forgiveness and mercy this morning. So Jesus, just as he cleansed this temple 2,000 years ago, he is just as zealous for his Father's worship today. And he's just as zealous for our worship for God today. And as we respond in worship this morning, as we come to respond now in worship, I want us to examine ourselves. And I'll examine myself. Examine our hearts this morning. Let's repent for any ways in which 
we've diminished our view of God's glory, in which we've diminished our view of God's worship. Let's repent for any ways in which we've corrupted our worship through sin and hypocrisy. Any ways in which we're complacent before God, complacent of his holiness, complacent of his holy, uh, his, his holy presence as we gather this morning. And pray that we would worship this morning, that we wouldn't rest and finish looking upon our sin, but we would look to this Lamb of God, the holy, spotless one without blemish, who died for us, who was replacing this old sacrificial system and, and died once and for all, that we put our trust in him, we, we repent, we receive his forgiveness and his mercy, that he stood in our place. And as we finish and as we worship, that we would worship him because he is worthy of all our praise this morning. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we are humbled this morning and reminded of your holiness and reminded of your holy presence, reminded of the, the awe and the reverence of which we should approach you in worship. And we are thankful this morning that we can approach you, not by what we bring, but by what your son Jesus has accomplished, that he has made a way for us to come into your presence, come into your holy presence, that we are righteous because of him, that we are acceptable to you because of him. And as we worship you this morning, I pray that we will search our hearts, that we will examine ourselves. And as we do so, and as, as we may be convicted of, of sin in our life, Lord, I pray that we would turn to you, that we would repent and fall upon your mercy. Father, as we worship, just, Holy Spirit, remind us of who we come to worship this morning. In your presence this morning, help us worship a holy God, a merciful God, a loving God, one who calls us out of sin, one who accepts us because of the work of your son, Jesus. And as we do so, may we give all our honor and all our praise and all glory go to you this morning, Jesus, for you are worthy of it. Amen.